Today on Ag News Daily. We have a lot of relics that Coronado, who discovered this in 1541, hmm. was the first a scrubber came across. And it was written by one of his lieutenants that uh, they were about to starve to death coming across the Yano Estacado. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, tomorrow, or I should say today, we are on the eve of Halloween. Tomorrow is Halloween, and we're talking pumpkin farming in honor of the holiday. But uh, you got any big Halloween plans? No, really don't have a whole lot of plans. I think some of my friends and I are going to dress up and maybe greet some trick-or-treaters because we're in a pretty kid-friendly neighborhood. So who knows? Not really a whole lot of plans with, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic going on. I really don't. Haven't heard at least too much that's going on in Lubbock or anything like that. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot going on here don't have a whole lot planned myself, but I heard something on the radio the other day, Ashton. I was curious if uh, you guys down there in Lubbock are doing this. I think that, I guess, I don't know, I don't have a lot of trick-or-treaters, but apparently putting out different colors of pumpkins signifies what type of household you are. So I guess like a teal pumpkin indicates that you have options for kids who have peanut allergies. And I heard something on the radio that said purple pumpkins were to indicate this year that you were a COVID-friendly household or that you are, you know, taking steps to prevent COVID during trick-or-treating. Is that going on in Lubbock? I hadn't heard about that, but I have been seeing a lot of colorful pumpkins around, so I really wouldn't be surprised. Okay. I was curious. I heard that and thought, oh, I am definitely very out of the loop if that is a thing that is happening. And yeah, I didn't know about it. So I was just curious. I definitely think think that it's a good idea, especially for those with allergies or, you know, with COVID-19 going on, you'd never know who is comfortable and to what extent they're comfortable with, mm-hmm. with talking to people and all that good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was just curious, but uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's a fitting, I think that we've got a fantastic pumpkin interview coming up, but Ashton, before we get to that conversation with Tim, let's talk some ag news for today. And I tell you what, I don't have a ton of it today other than some things that I think have the potential to really move the commodity markets. One of which is weather. We're still watching weather, not only in the United States as we finish up harvest here, but also worldwide. We're seeing, or we will be seeing some continued dry weather in Argentina. We're seeing La Nina weather patterns, as we've been talking a lot about on the podcast, um, continue to impact their production down there. And especially right now, the wheat is a big one for Argentina. And some recent estimates put out are suggesting that because of these dry weather patterns we're seeing in Argentina, we could see their wheat production slashed by about 10% this year. We are seeing estimates now being reduced from 19.3 million tons to about 17.4 million metric tons due to a lack of adequate soil humidity and wetness down there. Um, So, you know, we don't necessarily need more wheat. We've always got a lot of that worldwide, but that is a production issue as well as production issues in Australia. They are having some pretty severe thunderstorms with chances of hail and damaging winds. And meteorologists are also noted that are also noting that they could see flooding as well in many parts of the continent. And so their wheat harvest is 
recently kicked off and underway. And so we'll be watching that to see what kind of production issues, if any, that has on their country. But they were anticipating a record wheat harvest this year. So we'll see if that is able to follow through. And then the final big weather concern, I suppose you could say we're following or I'm following, is China. They have, uh, or they are, I should say, currently experiencing and anticipated to continue experiencing some pretty heavy snowfalls throughout the weekend into next week in some of their top grain producing regions. So this isn't expected necessarily to impact any sort of production, but storage has been kind of the main concern here. So we are seeing weather concerns worldwide, and that, of course, will all have its hand in the commodity markets. Absolutely, Delaney. And I actually have some weather and crop news myself concerning Hurricane Zeta. After hitting New Orleans earlier this week, the hurricane is now a post-tropical storm, although it was a strong Category 2 hurricane when it hit. And I believe that I read that it was the strongest hurricane this late in the season that they've seen in quite some time, although I, I could be wrong, so don't don't trust that completely. But two million people have been reported without power, and they are still trying to repair the damages from the past two hurricanes this season. And the storm missed key ag regions, including the Mississippi Delta and the Atlantic Coast, which is is a good good thing for those producers in those areas. However, some farmers are or were still hit pretty hard. And sugarcane and citrus are the crops being talked about right now, at least that I have seen thus far. And the damages to hurricane and losses within that industry in Louisiana are still being tallied. And farmers are in the middle of sugarcane harvest right now, but there is hope that they can get into the field and get that crop out of the ground. Avery Davidson of Louisiana Farm Bureau is hopeful that sugar sugar cane crop damage is minimal, but his biggest concern is for the areas where citrus is grown. Yeah, that's going to pose an interesting problem for them if they're not able to get that sugar uh, cane out of the fields. Ashton, I think that'd be a Good one to set up an interview with here moving forward if we can reach out to some folks at uh, Louisiana Farm Bureau. But those folks are definitely in our thoughts and prayers as they continue to deal with that stuff going on. Absolutely. I'll put that down on my list of things to do, Delaney. (laughs) Well, that sounds great, Ashton. But uh, in some other ag news here, ADM has recently suggested that China may be coming to the table not just for U.S. commodities like corn and soybeans, but also ethanol. ADM's chief financial officer, Ray Young, was quoted by Bloomberg that saying that uh, China has recently been sniffing around and inquiring about purchasing U.S. ethanol. He said he thinks that they will probably keep two of their dry mills idled throughout this low driving season. But if China does come to the table, that you know could pose uh, the ability for them to start back up some of those facilities. And so we'll see what happens there. But I guess China's at least inquiring about the potential of importing some U.S. ethanol. You know, I skimmed over an an article relating to ADM and ethanol production, and really it was just talking about the growth of the ethanol industry, growth of ethanol demand that is 
expected to be coming into the light here pretty soon. So that's also something that has definitely been on my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I take that back. I read, I misread part of the story. Uh, not only has China been sniffing around, but they have actually had one ethanol boat sail to China. So small, small step in the right direction. But, you know, China does have that ethanol mandate that they want to, I think it's 2025 or 2022. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but they do have a mandate where they want to see their entire country using that fuel type in the near future to contribute or to, uh, I should say, fix the contributions they are making to greenhouse gas emissions and um, the pollution issues that they have over there. So, you know, they've got to do something to get ethanol because they just do not have the capacity and storage to do that, to produce that type of ethanol uh, there domestically as of yet. So definitely a story to continue keeping an eye on. Well, Delaney, I just have one more story that I want to share this afternoon, and it is about the gray wolf being removed from the endangered species list. Livestock groups are prepared for resistance from environmentalists now that that decision has been made. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife ruled that wolf populations have fully recovered and no longer need federal protection. So from my understanding, it will now go to the states to manage gray wolf populations. But the National Cattlemen's Beef Association Vice President Don Schniffelbein, a rancher in central Minnesota, calls the recovery and the listing of the gray wolf an outstanding victory under the Endangered Species Act. The rule delisting the wolf from federal protections will go into effect on January 4th, 2021. And gray wolves, of course, are a threat to livestock species. And so I, I think this is something that's going to have to still be monitored. But I believe those those monitoring or the, that, that management will now go to states. Yes, I believe that you are correct there, Ashton. And speaking of monitoring, China monitors pretty heavily the amount of ractopamine that is allowed to be in residue in pork and beef. And this is a small step in the right direction, but definitely a small step at that. USDA Undersecretary Trade McKinney, Ted McKinney, sorry, has said that China has made a little bit of progress on reassessing their ractopamine ban. They said China, he said, China is moving forward on this and is has made a promise to consider lifting its zero tolerance policy on ractopamine residues in both beef and pork. So again, small step in the right direction, but definitely a small step at that. Delaney, do you know if ractopamine has a certain withdrawal period to begin with? Mm, you're really pushing my animal science knowledge, Ashton. Uh, I need to do some research on that one. That's certainly interesting to me, Delaney, because I am a person who doesn't really pay too much attention to foods that, you know, don't have any antibiotics or, you know, no drugs ever, because the FDA, at least, you know, here in the U.S., we have that rule instated with withdrawal periods for all kinds of drugs. And so it just kind of makes me wonder what kind of regulation that China has with drugs, period, and if ractopamine has 
a withdrawal period to to begin mm-hmm. with on the drug label. Yeah. Well, so from the Chinese perspective, they're pretty um, anti certain drugs. And I don't know enough about how they go about determining like what drugs are acceptable versus not. So that would be an interesting one we should dig into sometime a little bit deeper. I don't even know who we would talk to on that one uh, for an interview, but that's definitely an interesting question you posed there, Ashton. So maybe some of our listeners can message us and help us figure that one out. Absolutely. I would love to have that question answered. As would I, Ashton, but there is no question about where the market's ended for today. What do you say we take a look? Let's do it. Let's do it indeed. And we had some recovery today after the sell-off happening earlier this week across the grains and uh, finished pretty well higher on the day. Starting off here in the December corn contract, however, we finished unchanged to close at three and ninety-eight and a half. The March up a penny and three quarters to close at four oh three and a quarter. In soybeans, November putting on five cents today to close at ten fifty-six and three quarters. The January up six and a quarter to close at ten fifty-six and three quarters. In the wheat pits, pulling back today as the Chicago December contract pulled back five and a quarter centicles at Five ninety-eight and a half. The March down two and three quarters to end just above six dollars at six and a quarter. In the livestock markets, live cattle today higher on the day as the December contract added thirty-two and a half cents to close at one hundred eight thirty. The February up just two cents to close at one ten forty. In feeder cattle, the November contract up a dollar sixty-seven to close at one thirty-seven forty. January up two seventy-seven to close at one thirty-four twelve and a half. And in lean hogs, February, December, excuse me, shedding a nickel to close at 65.57. February also shedding a nickel to close at 65.55 and rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. November adding 63 cents today to close at 23.91. December up seven to close at 20.45. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to our awesome conversation with Tim. For today's Friday conversation and in honor of October coming to an end, we are talking to Tim Astor with the Astor Pumpkin Ranch in Floydata, Texas, just right down the road from me here in Lubbock. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you know your background and really how you got into pumpkin farming? Florida has an interesting story how pumpkins started. Uh, an older gentleman and his wife, named B.A. Slim Robertson, started growing pumpkins in the 1950s. And uh, it was unique. And some of the Dallas uh, produce people started coming in. He put a little stand out on the side of the road. And, and uh, eventually it became a, a pretty big business for him to ship those pumpkins out to uh, the bigger metropolitan areas. It's interesting. He got a letter one time that's just addressed the pumpkin man, Florida to Texas. And that couldn't be done very well today. But uh, they started it. My dad kind of went under his wing in the 1960s, and we've been raising pumpkins since. That is a fantastic story, Tim. I love that. I I can just about picture some of those uh, components of the story you were telling there. But I want to talk a little bit more about pumpkin farming um, because I think we – 
overlook some specialty sectors of agriculture like pumpkin farming. And of course, tomorrow is Halloween. So this is a very fun, uh, timely interview to do right ahead of that. But tell us a little bit more about growing pumpkins, the season, the work you're doing, that kind of thing. Well, pumpkins has been a, a large part in Florida. We call it the genuine Florida pumpkin and it's become famous. In order to raise that, I think that you have to have a, a the right climate and the right soil. However, pumpkins are raised on every continent except for the South Pole. And our environment is just uh, right for it except for rainfall. And we use, of course, irrigation water access, and we take very, very good care of uh, the land that we raise pumpkins on. So we plant mid-May. We start harvest uh, right at the around uh, Labor Day, right at the first of September. Most of our shipping is is done out uh, to the uh, consumer stores, whether that be a box store, a pumpkin patch. Uh, usually by the first of October, and so our main season is over at Asseter Pumpkin Ranch. We have a little retail outlet that we keep open until Halloween, and. So uh, it's, they're grown over the season in, in, a, in a great uh, environment with a, a lot of inputs. And then uh, we try to get them out to the customer. Tim, I want to talk a little bit more about the soil because I find this very interesting. I did a project earlier in college about growing pumpkins in the soil that we have here in the pan in the Texas Panhandle. So, can you just give a little bit more detail about why this soil is so good for you to be able to grow such great pumpkins? Um, the soil is important, and fertility is important, and weed control is important and a lot of things about the soil. However, uh, a, a clay soil or a sandy soil, we happen to be in a clay loam soil, but th th they're both good for pumpkins. Uh, it's, it's more about humidity with pumpkins because pumpkins have a tendency to have more of a problem with uh, mildew. Uh, anybody that has grown even summer squash has seen that white powdery uh, looking stuff on their on their leaves and that is one of the major problems and one of the good things about where we are is the hot sun can helps control that and so the soil is very important and taking care of the soil and getting it there uh fertility wise uh weed control wise is is a very important thing but i think that the other thing is the the climate on the outside of the soil that helps us so much Interesting. Okay. That, that makes sense. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I, I guess I didn't, I'm from Iowa, so I didn't realize that Texas was such a great state to grow pumpkins in, but that's, that's really interesting to learn. Uh, Tim, I'm going to throw a question at you. I'm guessing you've been asked this one before, but since we are on the eve of Halloween here, why are pumpkins kind of a staple signature for Halloween? I'm going to give you kind of a long answer here, if you don't mind. <laughs> no uh, problem. When we started growing pumpkins in the 1950s, a $2 jack-o'-lantern was the market. Uh, those kids got those jack-o'-lanterns, and in the 50s, 60s, and even 70s, you, you cut that out, and you made the best face you could make on it like you wanted to make. You put a candle in it, and you, and you watch the trigger-treaters come. That is not anywhere close to the market anymore. One of the things about Florida 
We raise about 150 different varieties of pumpkins. We have a red pumpkin. We have a blue pumpkin. We have a gray pumpkin. We have a pink pumpkin. And uh, we have some pumpkins that change colors kind of as you as you keep them. The, the fairy tale starts at a real emerald green color and changes uh, over time to a real leathery brown. And I might add that pumpkin, I've kept some of them for a couple of years. They're amazing. They're uh, not only beautiful to display, but they're, uh, they're, they have good uh, culinary properties. But let me go to this when you asked me the question you did about why do we do what we did. If you will think back to the 1940s and 50s, every well, there were more farmers in the world. And people lived in the country, and out at the side of their barn, they had a hay bale and a corn stalk. A corn stalk is something that we sell with pumpkins. They're not useful anymore for feeding stock, and we don't go down and cut them out anymore to keep around except for decoration during pumpkin season. But every barn had that. And if you think back to that time, there wasn't refrigeration. So sweet potatoes, potatoes, some of the things that you could get out of the garden that had a long shelf life is what they grew. And pumpkins and uh, uh, the, some, the winter squashes, such as acorn squash, butternut squash uh, those kind of things is what they grew because they didn't have refrigeration that's what they stored to eat in the winter time and so what people remember today is going out to grandmother and grandfather's farm and seeing a pumpkin and a hay bale and a corn stalk there at the corner of the barn which was done as means of livelihood, and we're trying to replicate that today. And we go into our mailboxes, into our wagons, into our um, d- different things that we have at our house, around the tree or on the front porch, wherever. And we tend to decorate in that same tradition that was started actually out of necessity years ago. That's really fascinating. I didn't realize that people used to use them as essentially ice boxes or ways to keep food cold. Well, they didn't use them for ice boxes. If you think back, and I can't see you on this podcast, but I can feel <laughs> that, that that you might not be in, in at my age. Back in those days, they used ice tongs, and they went to town and got blocks of ice to put mm-hmm. in a box to use as a refrigerator. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Well, there wasn't room for vegetables, and therefore, hmm. they used those vegetables to store. A pumpkin will store a long, long time. We paint some pumpkins in our barn uh, and we always have some left over and we'll leave them there till the next season. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I've kept one of those three years. And if they will last that long in storage then and they have eating quality, then you can see where in the past where we did more uh, eating of those type of products that uh, they had value to those uh, generations that were not as fortunate as us to have a brand new grocery store down the road. And and so it, it, it's a very important part of history. So Tim, you're doing more than just growing pumpkins at the Asseter Pumpkin, Pumpkin, I should say, ranch. You are doing a pumpkin days. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what actually goes on during the pumpkin days and a little bit more about how it went this year? Man, it was wonderful. There was a tremendous 
demand for pumpkins in 2020 as people wanted to get out and, and go to the to the farms and to the agritourism places uh, and do it. So Florida, back in about 1987, the Chamber of Commerce realized how important the pumpkin was to Florida, Texas, as we're known as Pumpkin Capital USA. So they put in a celebration, and it's called Pumpkin Days. Uh, my farm is 10 miles south of Florida. This uh, event actually happens in Florida in the courthouse square. And they have food vendors and, and uh, other vendors that come in uh, that set up tents and booths and all of that good stuff. They have pumpkin games. This year we had Jody Arrington there with us, kind of as a sub celebrity to to help us with all the events. We auction off a big pumpkin. We uh, have a pie-eating contest. We have several contests for the children and in painting pumpkins and pumpkin games. And it's just a wonderful celebration. And this year we may have had one of the better celebrations that we've had in turnout of vendors and people. They, we, we, it's the second Saturday in October, which this year happened to be the 10th. And we had a very warm, a very uh, good day in Texas to have such a celebration. And people came from all around way off to enjoying the festivities. It was a wonderful time. That is very neat to hear. Very neat to hear, Tim. Before we let you go, just one more quick question for you. You've talked a lot about the history of your pumpkin farm and a little bit more about your events. For any of our listeners who have questions about pumpkin farming or want to learn a little bit more about Floyd Ada pumpkins, how can they do that? Well, there's a lot of ways, I guess, uh, in this day of Facebook, we have a pumpkin uh, a page on Facebook, Acid or Pumpkin Ranch. Uh, the Piles, the uh, Pumpkin Pile, P-Y-L-E, is also a huge grower. And they actually uh, have a lot of videos on their site about the Arboretum and some of the things that come and get pumpkins from Florida. The genuine Florida pumpkin is pretty famous, and you can look it up on Google. Our email address is pumpkinranch, P-U-N-K-I-N, ranch at gmail.com. We'll be glad to answer any of your questions and, and respond uh, when we get a chance. But we'd love to do that. I'm going to tell you all one more story. I don't know that you'll use it, but I will before we sign off. Uh, one of the interesting things to me is in our museum in Florida, we have a lot of relics that Coronado, who discovered this in 1541, hmm. was the first a scrubber came across. And it was written by one of his lieutenants that uh, they were about to starve to death coming across the Yano Estacado, uh, trying to settle, trying to discover this country. And they actually ran some Indians off of a campfire, and they were roasting pumpkins. It's odd to me that uh, it's unique to me that that first discoverer found pumpkins here. And today we have the famous Florida pumpkin that is from Pumpkin Capital USA, and and all of that happened right here. Uh, on the hub around the hub city in the Great Plains of Texas. Well, that is a, certainly a neat story, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly appreciate the the history on pumpkin farming. Thank you again to Tim from the Aceter Pumpkin Ranch for coming on and talking to us today about pumpkin farming. Like you said in the interview, Delaney, I think we look over a lot of aspects of agriculture, you know, pumpkins included. So I always love talking to, you know, those guys that do get looked over from time to time. Absolutely. And 
It's perfect timing, of course, because tomorrow is Halloween, so it only makes sense to talk pumpkins. Certainly does, Delaney. I think I might have to run to the store and, you know, I'm pretty sure they have measly little pumpkins now, but might just have to carve a jack-o'-lantern in honor. You do that. I am not a good pumpkin carver, but if you do do that, you should be sure to tweet out a picture on our Ag News Daily handle at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep in touch with us, as well as follow along with all the news and information we're continuously sharing on our feeds. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.